This podcast may contain adult language and situations, graphic, gory details, and other not-so-nice things. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Lacey. And I'm Ashley. And this is United States of Murder. This week, we're in Washington discussing two high school dropouts from hell. Then we'll talk about a Halloween party that ends in murder. Buckle up and join us on this dark and twisted ride through the Evergreen State. The goth subculture started in the UK in the early 80s. They wear dark clothes, often black, dark makeup, and play role-playing games like Dungeons & Dragons or pretend to be vampires or witches. Movies like The Craft, The Crow, and even the Addams Family and Beetlejuice all depict the teenage angst of goth kids. To many, it's just innocent fun. But others, especially those with mental or emotional problems, the dark side of the goth lifestyle can become obsessive and lead to suicide or even murder. It's thrilling to pretend until there's blood on their hands. Terms like bad seed or freak creep up. Is it just impulsiveness and no thought of consequences or long-term outcomes of the moment they're in? Or is it something more? Millions of people listen to this type of music, play these games, and dye their hair black, all without murdering anyone. When senseless crimes happen, like the one I'm going to tell you about, people naturally want to know why, what went wrong. Sometimes the reason, terrifyingly enough, is as simple as we were bored. In January of 1997, two little boys were playing in a park in Bellevue, a suburb of Seattle, when they spot what appears to be a pile of clothes in some bushes. They don't think anything of it and go home. The next day, when they return to the park, curiosity gets the best of them and they go over to check it out. The clothes turned out to be a body. So they run home, tell their moms, who immediately call the police. Could you imagine if you had a kid and it was playing with Max and they ran in here and was like, we found a body. Who would get their shoes on faster, me or you, to go check out this body? Well, we would be like, you didn't touch it, did you? Yeah, exactly. You messed the crime scene up. (laughs) So the police officers show up and find the body of 20-year-old Kim Wilson. There was a cord wrapped around her neck clear signs of a struggle, and she had been beat with a blunt object. Autopsy would later say that Kim was strangled, stomped so hard that three of her ribs were broken, and her kidneys and spleen were damaged. Oh, my gosh. There was no sign of sexual assault. She only lived a couple blocks away, so after they finished with the crime scene, police went to her home to inform her parents. Mm -hmm. So police arrive. The house is dark. There's three cars in the driveway. They knock. No answer. They go to the side of the house. There's a door. Again, they knock. This one's unlocked. So they enter. Calling out as they do. There's no answer. Again, at this point, it's all feeling pretty ominous to them. So they draw their weapons and begin to slowly walk through the house. Upstairs, they see blood spattered all over the walls and ceiling of the master bedroom and find the body of Kim's mother, Rose. Bloodied and still in bed. Her head had been crushed by something with force and her throat had slash wounds all the way through it. On the floor was Kim's dad, William. He had also been beaten. His skull was crushed and he had been stabbed multiple times in the face, neck, and head. He was wearing a white t-shirt, and it had a bloody footprint on his back where the killer had stepped on him on their way out. How brutal. That is... It's, yeah. Down the hall... Oh, please, no. They find Kim's little sister, Julie, who was 17... She was in her bedroom and had stab and slash wounds to her hands where she had fought her attacker. Her arm was broken and she had been beat in the face and head. Her face and throat had multiple stab wounds. 
gosh. Police said it appeared that she had heard the commotion and went to investigate. And when she saw the killers, she had turned to run and was chased, caught, and then brutally murdered in the most horrific way. That's a nightmare. And, like, her mom and daddy were right there. Oh, my gosh. It's terrifying and heartbreaking. She had the most severe injuries, probably because she was trying so hard to fight off her attacker. Yeah. This sounds like a, like a slasher film. It's terrible. It's terrible. That's... Investigators seen where there were cut cords and the VCR and phone were gone. So it is kind of looking like a botched robbery. The phone? The phone was missing and the VCR. But they cut the cord to the VCR. What are you going to do with a VCR with no cord? So who could have possibly done this to this family? The entire family. Yeah, what was the motive here? I mean... No money was taken? No. Jewelry? No. Okay. So police start asking around. They questioned William's co-workers. He was an accountant, and they all said he was very well-liked. He had no enemies. Rose worked at the University of Washington as an accounting supervisor. Same thing. She's well-liked, no enemies. Julie, the 17-year-old, the little sister, was at Bellevue High School and was known as a sweet, shy girl who was excited about going off to college. And Kim, she had graduated from the same school a couple years before in 1995. Uh, She's described as being strong-willed and independent. She often clashed with her parents, and the neighbors actually had called the police one time because they were arguing. Teenagers. Yeah. Teenager stuff. Yeah. Yeah. She joined the AmeriCorps and had just came home from basic training in San Diego for the holidays. So she was home for Christmas when Mm -hmm. all this happened. So at this point, there are no suspects, no motive. There are no weapons found at the Wilson home. When looking into the victims' lives, police found out that Kim would sometimes hang out with a group of kids. I say kids. Teenagers. Who called themselves the Saturday Night Denny's Club. Um, this sounds like what old people would be doing. I mean. No offense. They were a group of friends who would get together and play role-playing games like Dungeons and, Dungeons and Dragons. And they were goth kids. Wait, so they weren't eating at Denny's? They were drinking cups of coffee and smoking cigarettes. Wait, why were they called the Denny's Club? Because they would hang out at Denny's. Oh, okay. And smoke cigarettes <laughs> okay. and, and okay, okay. play Dungeons and Dragons and drink coffee and do very gothy kid stuff. Okay. They, Gosh. you know, they had the black hair and the makeup. Mm-hmm. She had briefly dated one of them named David, mm-hmm. who was a high school dropout. And his best friend Alex and him both seemed to be obsessed with murders and death, along with the TV show Highlander. That's random, I feel it's, like. Well, they played Dungeons and Dragons, and Highlander was like all sci-fi Okay. They started collecting swords and doing all the role-playing things. So David and Alex had met in the seventh grade. David's parents were married. Mom was stay-at-home mom. He had three brothers and a very strict dad. So David was that kid that took out his aggressions on others and became a bully. But he did have a lot of friends and he was cute, cute guy. And he was pretty popular with the girls. Really? Yeah. Despite being a bully. Alex was very different. He came from, you know, his parents divorced when he was around eight. He was a super smart kid. Like, he started reading when he was three years old. So, after his parents divorced, he was kind of shuffled back and forth between them and between schools. So, it was very hard for him to make friends. And eventually, he just stopped trying. Because he just moved so much. And I hate that. I know. It's very sad. So he became depressed, alienated, and basically just enraged. Nevertheless, these two meet and become best friends. Hmm. They start dressing in all black when they get into high school. And both boys eventually drop out. Despite looking a little scary to some people, neither, neither of them had ever been in trouble with the law. Like, they were... Hmm. They were Good kids. I mean, so the two boys had talked about murder to other people, but everyone just kind of thought, it's just talk. They're doing it for shock value. They're doing it for for shock. Yeah. Right. For shock value. 
So police decided to question these two after hearing about all this, and both said they were playing video games the night of the murders at Alex's house. But Alex's roommates dispute this and say they saw them leaving around 10.30, carrying something long in the arm of their trench coats, and they didn't return till after 3.30 in the morning. <sighs> the police questioned them about their shoes because, you know, they had found the bloody footprint. Oh, right. Alex said he only owned one pair of shoes. And so they take them. They're not a match to the tread found at the scene. So five days after the initial questioning, Alex gets brought in again. And this time he admits to killing the Mm. Wilsons. He said he found Kim's pager number in David's address book. And she agreed to meet with him and hang out. She came to a gas station near Alex's house and the two went to a nearby park. He said he knew he was going to murder her before he (gasps) even called. He strangled her at the park, then became paranoid that she had told her parents where she was going and with who, so he had to kill them too. He drove her car back to her house, parked it in the driveway, and entered through the unlocked door. He attacked and murdered her entire family in their home, and before leaving, he took the VCR, the phone, and a CD player. And then he just, he went home. He wouldn't name his accomplice. So he didn't have a gun. He had a knife knife. and a baseball bat. So they bring David back in. This time he tells them he was lying at the first interview. He had actually not been with Alex that night, but he had borrowed his girlfriend's dad's truck and was driving between Seattle and Bellevue at the time. He said he did know that Alex had been planning to kill Kim for a while. I'm like, and you didn't try to stop him? Do we know why her? What was... The only connection that Alex had to Kim was David, because David had dated her. So police obtain a search warrant and search both of the boys' home and find the stolen items from the Wilsons' home and the boots with blood still on them. The blood was a positive match through DNA to the Wilson family. Next, they question the boys about their motive. And Alex said... I was in a rut. Um. A rut? What? Really cut your bangs. You don't murder people. Yeah. Yeah. He murdered an entire family with a baseball bat and knife. How old was he at this time? 17. You're in a rut at At age 17? Oh my gosh. So basically he says, I just wanted to experience killing someone. And there was an opportunity to experience something truly phenomenal. Detectives also find a promissory note saying Kim was to be paid $500 by September from David. Apparently, he owed her money, and it pissed him off that she was making him pay her back. He allegedly told people he was considering killing her because he owed her that money. $500? $500. He also told several people in the past that she would not sleep with him, and he was going to kill her because of this. Kim was kind of going through a phase where she was, and it may not have been a phase, but she was going through some stuff that she had told other friends that she thought she might be a lesbian. Mm -hmm. She wasn't sure. You know, she was trying to figure out life and and her sexuality. So, of course, all of this is speculation and hearsay. But So they were both arrested and charged with first-degree murder and as adults, despite being 17 years old. So the trial begins in October of 1998. Prosecution wanted to try them together, but the court decided Mm -hmm. they needed separate trials in order for it to be fair. Alex's defense said he was bipolar and he was influenced and coerced by David. So three weeks later, he was sentenced to four life terms to be served consecutively with no chance of parole. One month later, David received the same sentence. Mm -hmm. This set a new precedence for a change in the law in the state of Washington, and they have since declared that juveniles who are sentenced to life with no possibility of parole had to be reviewed for parole, like before this law went into effect. Oh, okay. They are still behind bars as of right now, but that could very well change in the future. I mean, like their whole lives are gone for what? Just because you wanted to kill somebody? sad it's completely senseless yeah 
Their principal said, we ignore these kids and hope that they go away. And then we are horrified when they commit these types of crimes or commit suicide. And he's right. Yeah. Like when this happened, like this, obviously I didn't know about this when it happened in 1997, 98. But I was the same age as these kids. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's no mystery. I talk about how old I am (laughs) all the time. But you know what I mean? And like I remember being in high school And there were those emo kids or the goth kids or the grunge kids and they did get ignored and bullied. And and it's like, you, I'm not, don't think I'm making excuses whatsoever, but, but the principal, I mean, he's right. You see these kids and you just ignore them and you hope they just go away or they grow out of it and people mistreat them and stuff. Not that this is what happened in this situation. No, I see what you're saying. Yeah. But then when they do something, then you're like, oh. You know, well, similarly with school shooters, Columbine, this was before Columbine happened, but it, yeah, not always, but a lot of it are, yeah, it's like the overlooked or the uh-huh. bullied or, mm-hmm. I mean, I know David was the bully in this situation, but you know, it's the kids on the fringe or outskirts or whatever. And right. Then, well, and it just almost seems like David formed this plan against his ex-girlfriend that he yeah. owed money and she wouldn't sleep with him and yada, yada, yada. Senseless. And Alex was the perfect person to help him carry out his plan. You mm-hmm. know, he didn't have a lot of friends. He didn't have siblings. He didn't have anybody really. And they became friends. And, and it was like, he trusted him and like, they almost had a brotherly bond. And yeah. it, it almost, again, strictly speculating, seems like he would have done anything for him. So it's like, you do these things. This is the plan. It's like he found the victim, planted it in his head, and was like, we should do this. This We always talk about it. And we always, you know, yeah. such and such. We should just do it. Ugh, that's So he... God, I, I hope Max doesn't ever grow up and have a friend that that's not funny. And they, it's terrible. No, but you know what I mean? You never know who your kids are friends with. That's true, but... So I know his parents went through a divorce mm-hmm. and that kind of thing, but no history of abuse or no. anything like that? No, he just... For either one of them? I mean, David's dad was super strict, but there's a That's, big difference between yeah, being yeah. strict and being abusive. Oh, yeah. Like, and, he, I mean, and he had three brothers, so he probably did get picked on and beat up. I mean, I had two sisters, and I, I yeah. still get picked on and beat up. <laughs> right, but I mean, nothing out of the... Quote, unquote, ordinary, like no sexual nothing, assault. No, nothing or, that I could find said that there was any, uh, like, physical okay. abuse to, you know. Because that is what's so strange is that. Mm-hmm. There's a book called Deadly Secrets by, I think it's Pusada Rang. I'll find a picture of it and send it to you. Um, is it all based on this case? Mm-hmm. or? Mm-hmm. Kids who kill, mm-hmm. teens that kill. Kids who kill was an episode that um, oh. I watched that that covered this, and then I, of course, looked on Murderpedia, and, and it's one thing that freaks me out so much. Just mm-hmm. kids that kill, and ugh. in general, um, yeah. I mean, kids are people too, and then we forget that. Well, and the parents, it's they're in the crosshairs of this just Always. because they're like, oh, oops, we want to cover our tracks, and they, ugh. and it's like sometimes you hear these stories of these. These kids who kill their parents or their siblings or, you know, a, a girlfriend or a boyfriend or whatever. And it's, it, I mean, it's got to be like the hormones and people blame music and, and you know, TV and media and, and all the things and books and everything else. But it's like they've got all this rage and the well, smallest yeah. thing will set well, them yeah. off like that one kid that killed his mom and dad because they told him he couldn't have a party. And then he mm-hmm. killed them and then had the party in the house with their dead bodies in it. I mean, yeah. It's, it's and crazy. frontal lobe isn't completely developed yeah. yet. I mean, my parents pissed me off on a daily basis, especially when I was 15, 16, oh, 17. Yeah. And I might have probably several times been like, oh my God, just kill them. I would never do that. You know, like yeah. never, literally never crossed my mind. I feel like most to teenagers have it. some form of rage sure. at their parents or someone. Right. Um, I do feel like emotions are heightened mm-hmm. as a teenager. Well, everything is 
everything, everything is, is, is live or die. You know oh, what I mean? 100%. It's like, it's not, if I can't go to the oh dance because I'm grounded, I'm going to die. I'm just going to die. Oh. I'm just, just kill me now. I can't, tomorrow will never come. Like it's the end of the world. I never cried harder than when I was a teenager. Oh my God. Over you know, stupidest shit. Like, the world was, so I've never had the, I want to kill someone feeling. No. But I, but I get it in the terms of something bad happens and you're just, how can I move forward? You can't like, cope. You, yeah, it's your cope. There's no yeah, coping mechanisms. Exactly it's like it a, it's like a toddler. I mean, I hate yeah. to say that, but it is like you take something from a two year old and like they lose their fucking mind, and it's almost like teenagers act like that too. I remember being that teenager, so it's just it's really sad. Well, and it's it's freaky too. It's not their fault, but the friends who said, "Oh yeah," I mean, they talked about murder. And we talk about murder. We're we, not going to yeah, run and kill somebody. But that's a scary thing. Yeah. You don't think about it. You don't it. know sometimes that things are red flags. Right. So it's not. Until it's too late. So this is kind of one of those things that it's their fault, obviously. But I mean, around them, what what could have been done? Mm-hmm. What are the signs? Mm-hmm. Because I mean, just, ugh, it's just sad all around. That That's a very brutal murder, though. Yeah. It's one thing to, like, let's say they went in, shot everybody, but to brutally just slash them them and stomp on them and beat them with a baseball bat like they beat her sister so bad that like they they broke her arm i don't she was trying to protect herself it's just for no reason and two teenage boys Mm -hmm. to act that out that Mm -hmm. just is that's terrifying It's, it's really it's really awful Oh my gosh. Washington is bringing the heat this week. Gosh, there's so much going on up there. My case is in the Seattle area too. You'll need a few drinks before we get into mine because it's a long-winded one again. I'm sorry. My case takes place in Redmond, Washington, which is around 15 miles east of Seattle. Have you ever been there? No, but that's close to where mine was. This is where the home of Microsoft and Nintendo are. There are a lot of other high-tech companies there as well, so that makes up a lot of employment in the area. Arpana Jinaga was a Rutgers University graduate who had moved to Redmond in early 2008 to work as a software engineer at a Bellevue firm. Before this, she immigrated to the United States from India to attend grad school. She received her master's degree in electrical and computer engineering at Rutgers in December of 2007. So she was very intelligent, but beyond that, she had a charismatic personality. She was super adventurous and upbeat. When she wasn't working, she practiced martial arts, volunteered at the local fire department, and was even in a motorcycle club. That's cool. She did it all. Yeah, she got to the U.S. and saw someone riding a motorcycle, and she said, I want to do that. So she learned how, got a motorcycle, and joined a club in the Pacific Northwest. That's really cool. Is it a club or is it a motorcycle no it was considered a club (laughs) i wonder what the difference is um well this was like the pacific north i didn't write it down but like the pacific northwest motorcycle like it was the club of the area but arpana moved into the valley view apartments just north of marymore park she lived in the top floor apartment up there so there were several apartment buildings and each one was three stories she didn't have any friends or family in the area at first but she quickly made friends It was a quiet area, but it was walking distance to downtown. The apartments housed mostly 20-somethings. So because of this, everyone kind of hung out. They were friends. She's a 24-year-old. She blends right in and makes lots of friends there. So that year for Halloween, they even planned an apartment-wide Halloween party. Ooh, fun. Yeah, it was her very first time celebrating Halloween, and she was super excited about it. She dressed up as Little Red Riding Hood. So this is really cool. The apartment complexes, so around four people had their whole apartment be a theme. That's cool. I know. Hers was a haunted forest. So like her whole apartment was a theme and other people's were a theme. So it's like it was apartment wide. So a bunch of 20 somethings, you know, young professionals. I don't, I've never um, even been to something like that where it's just a bunch of different apartments doing themes. That's such a cool idea. That sounds amazing. So people said it was a typical party, meaning everyone was drunk. <laughs> you know, there may have been a little bit of weed, but maybe. No, yeah, no hard drug zone. Like no one's doing coke in the bathroom. It was just Boo. B- mostly booze, <laughs> a little bit of weed here and there. So lots of photos were taken. Of course, this is 
in social media times, there are about two dozen or more people circulating around the apartments. So like a lot of open doors going in and out, that kind of thing. The party started out fine. Everyone was having a great time. But over the course of the night, some guys got a little too rowdy. Shocker. Yeah, I know. So one guy who I'm going to leave unnamed was brought to the party by his stepbrother. His stepbrother lived there, you know, brought him along. So this guy put a lot of people on edge. He was challenging everyone to an arm wrestle. (laughs) So at one point during the party, he followed one of Arpana's friends named Rachel into a room and he closed the door behind them. Mm-mm. Rachel later said that she made it very clear at this point she was there with her boyfriend and had no interest in him. So then he asked about Arpana, and Rachel told him she wouldn't be interested in you in a million years. At some point, Arpana got into a verbal argument with another guy there, and friends thought it was race-related. <sighs> he made some comments. I'm not really sure what he said exactly, but she quickly moved on from that and didn't let that get her down. Disengaged. Yeah, she just... It was a quick little tiff, and then she walked away, whatever. She wasn't going to let that ruin her fun. So a lot of people left the party around nine-ish, but a lot of people, like the core people who lived at the apartments or were staying there, they hung out late into the night, and around midnight, Arpana invited some people back to her place where she cooked frozen pizzas. Gotta eat. So the party completely winded down around 3 a.m. That's a long party. It is. No, I'd have had to move on. When when it was ending around nine, like well, not ending, but like a lot of people left by nine. You have to think it started at maybe I don't know when it started. Seven. That is a long party. It's a long party. But for the people that but are living live there, there, yeah, they're yeah. not driving or right. going anywhere. They're just all hanging, hanging out, out there. Yeah. So around three a.m., Arpana left a first floor apartment and went up to hers to get some sleep. So. She hadn't been back in India in a little over two years, and her family still did live there. But that didn't stop her from communicating with him regularly. In fact, she talked to them on the phone every single day. <laughs> You're like, nope, it's no, a no for me. It's a no. So the day after the party on Saturday, November 1st, she was not answering her family's phone calls. She wasn't calling them back. And this was extremely unusual. I mean, mm-hmm. they always talked. Mm-hmm. Sunday came and went. Still hadn't called them. They're like, no, this is something is major here. On Monday, she didn't show up to work. And one of her coworkers tried calling her, didn't get an answer, but he remembered she had a party over the weekend. And he was kind of like, oh, well, she's probably home nursing a hangover. Mm -hmm. Maybe the party went into the weekend Mm -hmm. or whatever. You know, he didn't think that much about it. But Arpana's father had a friend that lived close to her named Jay. He was actually a former student of his from India who is in the Seattle area as a professor. So he called him and he's like, look, you're the only person I really know here. Could you go to my daughter's apartment and check in on her? He was happy to do the favor for him. So he went to the apartment complex around 9 a.m. on Monday. He couldn't remember which exactly apartment was hers. He was re- he thought she lived on the top floor, of a, but he was kind of roaming around. It was taking him a while So one of her neighbors happened to walk by, and in this, I'm going to refer to him as CJ. Jay told him why he was there, and he accompanied him to Arpana's door. When they got to her door, it was very clear something was wrong. The door jam was broken, like someone had just kicked it in. And once they got inside, it was a mess. But I mean, it's a party, maybe someone, Mm -hmm. who knows. So they walked to the bedroom, and they found Arpana nude lying on her bedroom floor. Jay called 911, and I did listen to this call. He could barely breathe as he spoke, begging for 911 and help. And he said she didn't appear to be breathing. The dispatcher told them to leave the apartment, but stay close by while they waited for 911 to not contaminate the scene. So once the police got there, they closed off the area, got statements from them. It took crime scene investigators four hours to arrive after 911. Wow. There, yeah. According to police, there were also signs of sexual trauma. So they booked it as a case of a suspicious death in the beginning. So the crime scene was a total nightmare. Arpana had been gagged, beaten, duct taped, strangled with a bootlace. Investigators also thought something sexual in nature had happened. She had something blue all over her hands, which was later determined to be toilet bowl cleaner. Oh, my God. So likely because it had a high level of acid in it and they were wanting to get rid of evidence. 
maybe she scratched them or something and they thought that their DNA was on her hands. That's just my guess. She was also covered in motor oil from the waist down and there were burn marks on the carpet and the sheets. Like someone tried and failed to start a fire. Oh my God. And poured motor oil on her? Jesus. The bedding wasn't on the bed. Her bloody comforter was in the bathtub. Whoever did this took a lot of time to be in there fucking around with yeah, toilet bowl it was cleaner a and mess. motor oil comforter. Oh my gosh. So part of her Halloween costume was found in a nearby dumpster along with a robe and sheets that had burn marks on them. The black satin sheets were found burned. So whoever did this to her had been going up and down her stairs. Taking things. With and th- evidence in oh plain sight. God. So this was in plain sight. So... The autopsy revealed she died as a result of asphyxia due to ligature strangulation, so the laces around her neck. She also sustained blunt force injuries to multiple areas of her body, had a broken tooth, and bruises everywhere. Based on her injuries, they believe she put up some sort of a fight. You know, she was in martial arts, Mm -hmm. so she probably Mm -hmm. didn't know what to do. So they thought that the killer might have some bruising or marks on them based on how they could just tell by the looks of her hands, you know. Yeah. Based on her state, they determined she'd been murdered. She had been murdered a few days prior, basically, Rita the night Mortis after. Said, yeah. Right. So basically, they're like, she died after this Halloween party. Yeah. Or that late that night, early morning, however you want to look at it. Redmond was a safe city. The police had not dealt with that kind of crime, of that magnitude at least. So the entire case was complicated from the start. So you have a suspect that was likely at this Halloween party. Mm-hmm. Knew dozens, she'd be alone. Dozens and dozens of people were there in costumes. Oh, man. Everyone was drunk. No one could remember what certain people came or went, what times everyone was there. So it was just, it was a mess from the start. So the investigators started compiling all the photos they could of the party to try to kind of figure out who at least was there. And at first, they were referring to people by their costumes because they didn't know who, right. who they were behind the masks. Well, some of them. So CJ, the neighbor who helped Jay, lived in a unit beside Arpanis on the same floor. He told investigators that the night of the Halloween party, he went back to his own apartment sometime after midnight and went to bed. But he said around 3 a.m. he woke up and he could hear moaning, strange noises coming from her apartment, he heard a loud thud. He was thinking that either she was having sex or maybe she was sick and like moaning because she was puking and like went to the bathroom. Like she drank too much. Yeah. So he's yeah. like, oh, it sounded, I don't know what was happening, but the, it was just kind of moaning noises. So he couldn't figure out what she just went back to bed. He woke up about 10 a.m. the next day, called her when he got up, was going to check on her. She didn't answer. Police asked him if he called her during the night, and he said no. But then the police were like, okay, well, we've already seen her phone records, and based on that, you called her twice around 3 a.m. And he responded with, oh, crap. But yeah, he was like, I was drunk. I don't Uh remember doing anything. And he said he got to the party hammered. So he was drunk and then kept drinking. Could be true. They asked if maybe he tried calling her in the middle of the night and then walked over because he was just right next to her, like the sure. apartment's touched, yeah. and saw what was going on, and he responded with, I don't think so. He couldn't even remember that. They asked him what he did the morning after the party, and he said that after he woke up, he went on a long drive because he liked doing that. He drove to the Canadian border because he had never driven that area before, so he decided to drive up to Canada. He didn't have a passport with him, though. So he drove back. The drive there would have been about 100 miles. So the police talked to the officials at the border, and they said that he attempted to drive right through them, actually, without stopping or declaring himself. I don't know who thinks they can just buzz right by border control, but that's what he tried to do. So they, you know, stopped him, and they were like, hey, what's up? And he said he just wanted to pop in and explore, and they're like, you can't. (laughs) You have to have a passport. Right. So he was turned around. After obtaining a search warrant, police also found a printout in his car dated for November 1st showing pawn shop locations. They asked him about it, and he said he didn't remember that. Arpana's cell and digital camera were missing, so cops were thinking these items were pawned off or something, and they never were able to locate them. So after CJ's failed trip to Canada, he went to a friend's house, and while he was there, he attempted to wrestle them. 
all of these dudes what? are obsessed with wrestling. It's just a dude thing. I find it kind of funny the use of it it was quoted attempted to wrestle. As though like he shows up and he's trying to wrestle them and they're like, dude, it's like one. We're watching sports. What are you doing? He's like, like yeah, I can't get out of here. <laughs> So some of the friends there noticed he was walking with a limp, and investigators also noticed this and asked him about it, but he said that was from a wrestling match at the Halloween party. I know. I know. I know. There's more wrestling. Girls don't just hang out and wrestle. (laughs) Contrary to what you guys think we do at slumber parties, it's not pillow fights and wrestling. But they thought the limp came from somewhere else. They thought he was trying to wrestle people the next day to give himself an excuse for why he had a limp. CJ was Arpana's neighbor, but they were friends. She called him, quote, her orphan. So her friends were asked about that, and and they said that she had a soft spot for lost people, would like to take them in under a wing, become friends with them. Her friends thought he had a thing for her, but she didn't like him like that. He was kind of like a brother to her. So when police asked him, he admitted that he did like her and he wanted to hook up with her that night, but it didn't happen. He said, she looked really good. I hadn't seen her for months. I'd never thought about her like that. He also told them he just stopped taking his psychiatric medications, but the investigators didn't ask him what meds he stopped taking or what mental illness he was treating. Other people that knew him said over the next few weeks, he made vague statements about him going over to Arpana's house in his sleep. Some of his friends were also worried about his emotional state at the time, especially coupled with the fact that he quit taking his meds a short time before. Some mutual friends said he seemed resentful that she was spending time with other people and making new friends. So this is weird. CJ was asking people like his friends, did I kill Arpana? Just, I guess, to see what their response would be. And they were like, (laughs) it was almost like he didn't know himself when he was asking. Like, did I kill her? Like, was I so messed up that yeah, I could have right. possibly done this? Mm-hmm. So during the investigation, police found his DNA on the motor oil container that was in the bag with the red robe in the dumpster. They thought she was wearing that robe that night. Remember, she was a little red riding hood. So when asked about this, he also said he had no idea why his DNA would be there. Basically, his answer to everything was, I don't know. I don't remember. I don't know. Which could have been true. Could have been true and would probably be very terrifying Yeah, to think, am I capable of this? Mm -hmm. So they released him. And even though he did call her in the middle of the night, they didn't take his phone away for to, you know, search his texts or anything, which police to this day say was a mistake. Later, they did retrieve the phone from him. But at this point, he had scrubbed it clean. Mm. All of everything was gone. Everything was gone. Then he hired a lawyer and stopped cooperating. Obviously, (laughs) you know, like he's going to lawyer up. Mm -hmm. So the court documents showed that there was DNA from a man on one of the bootlaces used to strangle Arpana, but he didn't attend the party. And I'm not sure who this person was. They said this, they don't believe he had anything to do with the murder. It was just his DNA was on her bootlace. So like I said, police gathered a bunch of photos from the party. We're trying to figure out who everyone was. And within a week, police interviewed everyone who was known at the party. In multiple photos, they saw a guy dressed as a construction worker. They asked around and discovered his name was Emmanuel Fair. Emmanuel didn't live at the apartments, but he was staying with a friend of his who did. So he attended the party with them. They got his DNA and found that it matched some trace DNA that was found on Arpana's neck, a piece of duct tape, and was in some of the blood found in her robe in the dumpster. The police checked his record and they found a rap sheet. Prior to this, CJ was their main suspect, but now Emmanuel has a history, so, you know, he was their focus. So Emmanuel had a rough childhood and was in foster care until he ran away at age 16. He had been in quite a bit of trouble with the law. When he was 19, he was charged with third-degree rape of a 14-year-old. Good God! Yeah, he ended up submitting to an Alford plea. He didn't admit to the rape, but he admitted that there wasn't sufficient evidence in the case, so... They thought, he thought a jury could find him guilty. So he also had some charges of drug and firearm related crimes. Not a good look. And he was the only person at the party with a record. So of course, police zeroed in on him. Emmanuel told police he had met and talked to Arpana, but mostly chatted with her neighbor, CJ. He didn't know them prior to this party. 
So they listened to some music together, and CJ showed him some of his music editing software in his apartment. People at the party also said they saw them hanging out together. They didn't know each other prior to this, and he said he did go into Arpana's bedroom briefly, but only because she wanted to show him some photos that were on her computer. He said she seemed really nice and friendly, but that was the extent of it. He got there earlier with his friend Leslie and helped them decorate, including blowing up balloons and that kind of thing. Later that night, when they all ate pizza, he was there as well. Detectives with the Redmond Police Department got his cell phone records and discovered he made or received 20 calls between 1.54 a.m. and 4.48 a.m. Three of those calls were made to the tenant he was staying with, Leslie. He said that some of the calls could have been made while he was sleeping that night or by accident, like rolling on his phone or butt-dialing someone. Right. I can't speak to that because I accidentally call people all the time. So, I mean, (laughs) that is possible. One thing I'll add is in every single interview, Emmanuel's story is the same and has never changed. All the small details, they they stay the same. A witness that was getting home late from work around 3 a.m. that didn't attend the party said they saw a non-black individual standing in the doorway of Arpana's apartment. Two years passed. And they charged Emmanuel Fair with Arpana's murder in 2010. He was charged with first-degree murder with sexual motivation, and the trial was in King County. So there was a lot of back and forth with the DNA testing and the company used. It was a drawn-out legal battle. took several years for the trial to finally happen. It didn't even start until February of 2017. So Emmanuel had been sitting in jail for almost eight years at this point. So mm-hmm. the, DNA, the DNA evidence that was analyzed by the company True Allele revealed that CJ was a similarly likely candidate to be Arpana's killer. I was trying to make sense of the DNA stuff, but honestly, it was over my head and I had, a, had trouble understanding it. It gets very yeah. confusing sometimes. So prior to the trial, the state did agree that the evidence linking the neighbor CJ was admissible, but explained he may have helped Manuel with the crime, but they agreed that CJ couldn't be named as an accomplice because there was no proof. Like, there was no proof that he was an accomplice. So CJ was called in as a witness and only answered to certain questions. He testified that he was interviewed four times by detectives. He had received immunity for two interviews no immunity for testifying at trial. The dumpster where her costume and sheets were found had no security. And another big issue was that there was room for tampering. The dumpster was discovered by police the evening her body was found, but it was two days. Two days went by before they emptied it out item by item. So within those two days, something could have been added, taken away. Then it's just like, who knows? One of the jury notes in 2017 said this. Why was the neighbor CJ given immunity, and why was he limited to the questions he answered? What are the conditions of his immunity? What happened with the prior proceeding in 2017? Which are all good questions, in my Mm -hmm. humble opinion. I'm Uh, like, why does he have immunity? The response was this. The court previously instructed you that the attorneys have been prohibited from asking him certain questions due to his privilege against self-incriminations. Do not make any assumptions about what he would have said. So Emanuel's defense attorneys insisted he was treated very differently from the other suspects from the very beginning. He was the only African-American person at the party. The defense believed that they zeroed in on him because of that and that they were suspicious of him even before they realized he had criminal records. They felt like as soon as they got the criminal records and saw those, they got tunnel vision. They they saw that he had a rap sheet and they're like, well, this has got to be the guy, you know? Who else would do it? He's the only guy with the record. He did it. Boom. We've solved it. They said he was treated negatively during the interviews, while others were treated with, quote, metaphorical kids' gloves. They seemed immediately hostile with Emmanuel. I listened to the interviews and will agree they were kind of nice, for lack of a better word, to CJ, even though he was suspicious as hell. The prosecution went in strong. Emmanuel was a repeat offender. Maybe he even acted with an uncharged accomplice. Defense countered that by stating that if they were factoring in DNA evidence for the crime, then the neighbor would be just as guilty as Emmanuel. Exactly. That's what I I had a hard time getting. So if not more so, because he lived next door to her, had a personal relationship with her, liked her, had people saying he was resentful of her. Mm-hmm. And Emmanuel never met her before. But so, so evidence implicated them both. Right. 
DNA implicated them both. Right. But they went with the route of Emmanuel because I guess he had a criminal record. So they're like, well, then it's him. They didn't go. They didn't go for both of them. Yeah. So DNA was found by several of Arpana's neighbors and party goers, even in her room. I mean, she had a party. Two dozen people were in her apartment. There was even semen from an unnamed person found on a towel near her body. He had an alibi and wasn't at the... I know exactly. He wasn't at the party. He had an alibi, so he wasn't a suspect. But I mean, it's like she has semen in her room from someone else. But the semen that was found belonged to somebody who wasn't at the party? Correct. So maybe the day before. Yeah. yeah. I mean... So uh, all of this to say DNA was everywhere. Right. Right. So they also later found out that that creep I mentioned in the very beginning of the story, the guy that wanted to arm wrestle everyone, started <laughs> wrestling Emmanuel for fun. Arm wrestle. I told you wrestling would come back. <sighs> so this resulted in Emmanuel getting a bloody lip. So his lip was bleeding, and the defense argued this is one way his DNA could have been distributed around the apartment. He cleaned himself up in her bathroom. Blood could have been there. And mm-hmm. partygoers party witnessed the scuffle. So people are like, yeah, I had a bloody lip. So the defense pointed out a lot of gaps in the investigation, including the two years it took them to single out Emmanuel as a suspect, during which, get this, investigators hired a psychic to help point them in the right direction. Stop. The psychic helped lead them to Emmanuel, so I guess who could argue with that? Two months after the trial, it ended with a hung jury. Out of the 12 jurors, it leaned 9-3 to three in favor of acquittal, so this was a mistrial. Then, the state decided it wanted to build a case around Emanuel working with an accomplice instead of just charging Emanuel. Defense argued that attempting to convict both him and an uncharged accomplice for crimes they might have committed together was unconstitutional. They could try them separately, but they couldn't try Emanuel for cr- the crimes of both, so they were basically trying to Charge him for murder and then charge him with murder with an accomplice. So from what I read, it was pretty obvious that the prosecution eventually thought CJ had his hands dirty at some capacity. They knew the jury wasn't going to buy that Emmanuel committed this crime by himself. So that's why they were trying to add on, oh, he did it with someone. His second trial began in 2019. And once again, CJ was called to the stand but was limited in questions he could answer or be asked. So the jury was once again deadlocked. Because, I mean, you have to think, you're not supposed to form your own interpretations of why someone's... But that's going to look suspicious. Oh, he's not allowed to be asked these certain questions. It's like, why? I thought, I think that made him look bad. Maybe he had a lawyer, I guess he was telling him what to do. So the jury was deadlocked again, but they did eventually agree to a consensus. They found Emmanuel Fair not guilty. At this point, he was 35 years old. So at one time, Emmanuel Fair was the longest-serving inmate in the King County Jail. He spent nine years behind bars without ever being convicted of a crime. That's unbelievable. So he wasn't even... He was never found guilty, but he was still in jail for nine years, which is just... That's... uh Uh-uh. So he had a seven-figure bail the entire time, and his family couldn't afford to pay it. So that's, you know, that sucks. That's sad. I know. So after he was released, he said, quote, I always knew I was going to get out. I just didn't think it would take as long as it took. I felt like I was kidnapped. I was lost. There was potential there that was just taken away. He was essentially in solitary confinement for nine years. He was away from the gin pop and what they called administration segregation. He's spoken openly about how poorly he was treated in jail and he successfully represented himself in a legal claim for an injury he sustained from handcuffs. And he received a $25,000 settlement from the King County Jail in 2017. Since his release, he said that he struggled to adjust to life outside of jail, and he struggled to find steady work. He does work a security job now and lives with friends, but he says he's depressed and doesn't go out much. That's so sad. I know. It's I know. So in 2008, Arpana's body was taken to the burial ground near Whisper Valley in Jubilee Hills, Hyderabad, and laid to rest as her family and friends gathered to pay their respects. To date, her murder remains unsolved. There are some rabbit holes that I I went into, but I'm only going to mention them here briefly because it's 
that's a whole other thing. So the boogeyman of the Pacific Northwest, you know who I'm going to talk about? Not Ted Bundy. Israel Keys. Israel Keys. He's thrown around a lot online about maybe being a potential suspect. He was a serial killer. He killed people in that area. He knew it well. Records show that he was in Seattle the weekend that party happened. So he was. <sighs> he could. Yeah. And another man named Mark Patrick O'Leary, who is a convicted rapist and home invader, had committed crimes in the area where she lived. Between Washington State and Colorado, he was linked to five violent rapes, and he kept mementos of them, such as their cell phones. He has never been charged with murder, but he is currently serving life in prison. It's one you think there's no way that it would be a stranger, but I mean, it's a big party. Someone's walking by. Oh, what's going on here? I don't know. Stranger things have happened. There's a podcast called Suspect by Wondery that is really good. So it details this entire case. I haven't finished listening to it yet because I didn't have time, but I'm about halfway through. So he does a lot of interviews with people. He's an investigative journalist. He traveled to the area. He talks to Emmanuel and some of the interviews, just everyone's take on on the whole right. thing. He does mention the real names on his podcast. He doesn't like, care. Yeah, I'm like, oh, no one else did in a lot of the articles. So I'm like, yeah, I'll keep it abbreviated as well because he hasn't been charged with anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, binge that. This case has so much into it. I could have talked about it what for was hours. The name of it? Tell me that again. Suspect. 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 Yeah. So I got a lot of my information from the court documents, Seattle Times, Media, Unsolved, and I'll link all that up in our show notes. If you want to just deep dive on a case, I recommend this one because he goes into the interviews, the people at the party, the friends. It goes into so everyone's angle. That something like that can happen and there be DNA and evidence and then it just be unsolved. Mm-hmm. Like you think that. I mean, they've caught people with less, you know? Yeah. DNA, I guess, it's a double-edged sword because it mm-hmm. helps. But when there's it can been also a- implicate, of, yeah. yeah, people that- Think of a, having a- I'm, I think back to my Halloween party. I had people I didn't even no. know here. Yeah. And their DNA is probably all over the place. Still. Who knows if someone cut their finger and rubbed their blood? I, you know, yeah, you knows? don't know. It's mm. just freaky. Yikes. Have you ever watched the show The Night Of on HBO? No. It's really good. The night of, it's basically, long story short, there's more to it, obviously, but a guy's at a party, there's a girl, he's drunk, she ends up dead, he's caught in the crosshairs, he's drunk, he couldn't remember what he did, and he ends up going to prison, prison makes him hard, and it's kind of, it's depressing, but it is a really good show. I know I always, when I talk about shows, I make them sound bad. (laughs) It's terrible, but it's good. But we have two new patrons. Yay. No, wait, scratch no, that. No, we have more than that. We have three we have because three. one joined today. Okay. Woo. Are you ready? Drum roll. Da-da-da-da. Is that how a drum sounds? No. Not I think even so. Close. I think so. Okay. We have patron number one. Her name is Shelby J from Mississippi. Hi, Shelby. Hi, Shelby. Thank you so much. We have Jenny G from the UK. Oh, oh, that's our first international. Yeah. Hi. Hi, Jenny. You you popped our international <laughs> cherry. <laughs> so you my, can cut that out. <laughs> I'm going to keep that in. <laughs> and I sent some stickers, Jenny, to you, but they'll probably, by the time you hear this, they'll still be like going in into Yes. Yeah, it'll be a while. And we have Dina C. from California. California. Hi, Dina. Thank you so much. Thank you, Shelby, Jenny, and Dina. Yes, We're thank all over you. the place. We, with we, and we love it. We love you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, we just released our January episode, and that was a doozy. That was like an hour and 20 it minutes. Was it was one. a longer one. But we talked about all kinds of stuff in we that. We went off the rails. We were. We'll be posting a new one in a few weeks for February. We do one every month. If you want to live. If you want to live. live. <laughs> if you want to live. No, no. <laughs> if you want to join us on Patreon. <laughs> yes, please rephrase that so people don't think you're threatening their lives <laughs> if they to, don't join. If you want to join Patreon, head to patreon.com slash United States of Murder. And you can see the episodes and all that there. I'll send you some stickers in the mail. If you still haven't gotten them and you've been a patron for a while, message me. Who knows what gets lost in transit? 
Want to buy us a drink? I would love one. <laughs> it's been a long time coming. Can I just say? Um, yeah. You sh- Ashley's been on antibiotics. For three months. For years. It's been three years. It's been three months. You know, I'm, I'm okay. Just so y'all know. Yeah, she's okay. Just, it was, it was just, dicey. You there, had was, a, yeah. there was about to be a pick line involved and, and <laughs> IV antibiotics for weeks. And so anyways. Lord. But we avoided that. Yeah, you did. We're Oof. good. You have some strong... I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm no body. quitter. Yeah, your body's like <laughs> nothing no, in my girl, body's we're like. Keeping this no, infection. we're gonna we're gonna keep going. <laughs> we're gonna, we're gonna keep, keep going with this. We're we're on a roll. We so like, we're all done now. Yes. Yeah, so, so yeah, if you want to buy Ashley a cocktail, a, a celebratory, a celebratory cocktail. Yay! I would love that. Yeah, we have the link. I in will our take bio pictures of me drinking she it. She will. She'll name it after you. I will name it after you. I'm so excited. <laughs> I promise, I'm not an alcoholic. Why did you just look at me like that? No, I was going to say, well, no, you haven't drank. You haven't, haven't drank anything. Drink I mean, for, it's been a hot minute. Yeah, we've had, I've been, I'm drinking in what, solidarity. Are you drinking alcohol? No, today? no, I'm drinking a Diet Coke. Oh, in, yes, um, in solidarity yeah, of me yeah. not being able to drink. Not, yeah. I've not been the life of the party. It's That fun. has not been fun for me <laughs> to have to share that spotlight. <laughs> Oh, man. But yeah, you can also leave us a review on Apple. Please leave us a Spotify, review. Spotify uh, has reviews now, which is cool. Please That's go there, thing. too. Yeah, if you like us, if you don't, you know, we love you if you leave us decent reviews. If they're bad, no. Nah. Those one stars, no, we don't love you. We don't love but those. But also, they're not still listening. This is No, they probably are. <laughs> they're like those people that... That troll on Instagram no. accounts and, and make no terrible trolls. comments. No you know trolls. what I'm talking about, though. When people are like, oh, my God. Hate listeners. Yeah, this, that, and whatever. And you're like, well, then just unfollow this no, page. <laughs> Why do you keep commenting? Why are you still Why are you here? still here? No, but we love all of you. And we're going to be in Indiana next week. Indiana. And then after that, it's our Valentine's Day episode. Oh, boy. So get thinking about that. Oh. Well, you know how I feel about love. <laughs> Ashley freaking hates I Valentine's hate it Day. So, so buy her some Valentine's cocktails. <laughs> yes. I don't know why. It's I'll always have to been make this us way. since you'll be able to drink. I'll make us a, a fruity, no. fruity tootie pink special yeah. sprinkles and icing. I don't know. Mm, sounds delicious. Or just. The, a raspberry martini. That me. sounds good. I know. I, I like, can do that. You know, I don't like all that stuff. I'll give you a martini. So, what's new with you? Any any hot gossip? <laughs> I got nothing. I got no gossip. Oh, we're going to Vegas. We are, but sorry, not for Crime Con. Not for Crime Con. <laughs> no, we're just we're just we're going, just going, to, going go. to Vegas. Going to go. This is our first trip together. It is. We're going. Oh, we're going to Nevada. Can I, can I sit by you on the plane? Are you yeah. Are you going to want to sit by your husband? I don't care. He can sit by by Jake. You'll <laughs> <laughs> be too embarrassed to sit by me. Oh boy. Well, please I'm, don't get us kicked off the plane before we get to Vegas. I, I would never. We are flying Frontier. We, <laughs> I'm not excited about. Sorry, anybody listening, but it's basically the Dodge Neon of the sky. Oh my god! <laughs> I've flown. We take the cheapest flights. But if he could put me in cargo and it get half the price, he'd shove me into cargo. Oh, no. I'm serious. Oh, no. He told me once, he's like, we'll never fly first class. Just- <gasps> <laughs> <No>. <gasps> and I was like, I don't have to fly first class, but I don't want to sit by the bathroom. Samuel always has to sit in the very back by the bathroom. <laughs> it's convenient. It's convenient if you have to pee. It's not convenient if somebody takes a huge shit back there and we're on a three-hour flight. Fun fact. You're allowed to use the restrooms in first class. Well, duh. You knew that already? Yeah. That's what you do. Well, I I'll, I don't poop on planes, but... It's too small in there. I don't want to sit in the back. I, I hate being put on the seat where they're like, in case of emergency, do you agree to do these things? You know that? Have you ever well, never had to sit in that, no, that seat? No, I love those seats because you, you have, have a little leg room. room yeah. I don't like it because it's got the the perforated door that you may have to kick open and i'm like oh no i don't want to sit by anything that has a possibility flying open (laughs) they're like do you agree and i'm like absolutely do not will you please switch my seat with i'm better about i'm better about flying but yeah it's gonna be fun i've been looking up 
tips and tricks for Vegas. This is your first time. No, I've been before. This is my first time. It's your first time. It but is my when first I time. went, I was a 16-year-old girl Can't wait. who I walked through casinos and but I wasn't drinking. I had a blast though. It's not going to be the hangover the, the movie. Oh, yes it is. Have you seen that? Oh it, my gosh. It is 100. There were 6 of us going, y'all. It's going to be a hot mess. It's going to be a hot mess. I'm bringing all kinds of treats for the flight attendants. Oh, that's sweet. I, I try to do that. Especially with all of us on there. It's to be like, here, idea. here's a bag of Dove chocolates. I'm real sorry for my friends. Oh my God. You're like, um, also, sorry. Also com- for me. We're, we're going to be a hot mess, and I apologize to you greatly mm-hmm. for this. Mm-hmm. That's a good idea. I'm going to be... If you've flown Frontier in the past month or two, let us know and tell us how... <laughs> tell us how that Dodge Neon ride was. No. We're going to get so much hate. For, I love Frontier. I've never flown it. I'm, I'm oh, just, you haven't? No. Oh, it's fine. No, I'm a Delta girl. This is Flying Corner. <laughs> Thank you for coming to our flying TED Talk. Tell us about your flying tips, your your Vegas tips. I've already decided. I get the window seat. I'll tell you that. I want, oh I want the window. She's got demand. I, I'm very demanding. I don't want to be by the demands. bathroom. Oh I don't want to be. I got to Hold on. Let me get my pen. I got to be on. by let the me, window. Let me, get my, let me write this down. Because I like to look out. I might have to put my Bob Seger song on repeat and my earbuds in repeat until we hit cruising altitude and then I'll change the song. We'll be talking about this every week. Just kidding. <laughs> They're like, oh my God. Unsubscribe. Months are passing. Unsubscribe. Okay. We got to go. We've rambled too long. We're going to get hate mail. All See right. you next week in Indiana. Bye. Bye.